Hey, everybody, and welcome to iFreaks. This week on our panel, we have Michael Holt. How's it going, everyone? I'm Andrew Madsen in Salt Lake City, and we have a guest today. Our guest is Igor Kuhlman. Igor, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, glad to, glad to be here. I'm a software engineer. I'm currently living in Prague, Czech Republic, but I'm actually Slovak. And I've been doing mobile app development for the last eight years, basically my whole career. I started first with Windows Phone. I did it for about five years from the start to the bitter end. And then I just turned my computer into a Hackintosh and started doing iOS development, which was about three years ago. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, so we uh, we asked you to be on today to talk about a few things, and, and that, that remark about a Hackintosh is interesting, and I, I do actually want to get to that. Um, but before we dig into that a little, uh, you, you've made a couple pitches and I think, um, one formal proposal, uh, in the, you know, to Swift for the, for the Swift evolution process. Um, tell us about that. What have you pitched? Yeah, you are right. So my first pitch I did about like three or four months ago, and it was something like uh, super specific. So Imagine you need to decode an array of JSON objects. And if the array is heterogeneous, meaning each object can be of different type, uh, then you need to write some code, which is fine, but there is no way to ignore some of the items in the array. So for example, my specific case in the app was that I was getting a list of uh, some sys messages and some of those messages was no longer needed and used for in the app. They were there just for some compatibility reasons. So I didn't want to process them or even like have the classes related to them. And I was looking for a way to skip some of the, these items in this JSON array. And I found out there is like no good way to do it in the Swift currently. So I was looking for some workarounds and how to approach it. And that resulted uh, in, a, in a pitch on the forum. And it was my first pitch and basically first interaction with the Swift community. So what was the experience like? How did it go uh, pitching that? Uh, the pitch, pitch was, was fine. It was probably like uh, better than I expected. The community was like really welcoming and and nice and people proposed like different solutions and ways how to make it better and how to actually implement it and i think i think it it's nice to be honest i was expecting something 
uh, say less less friendly or less welcoming after some experience on the Apple developer forums and some Apple let's say developer interactions but this this went really fine and this resulted in a formal proposal I created a PR with a formal evolution proposal a PR with the actual Swift uh, Swift implementation I implemented my solution in this Swift standard library I submitted both and I've been waiting for someone to notice it basically ever since I'm not exactly sure if it's the way to go or maybe that I was supposed to do some other steps because I think the evolution process is not that well described the basic steps are described like uh, propose a pitch create a formal pull request uh, wait for the review get through the review but there's not much information about these step, steps in the part I'm currently stuck. Yeah, this is interesting. I actually just found your um, your pull request and it's been open since April 1st. Uh, I wonder about that because it looks like nobody has looked at it. And is there some, is there some process you're supposed to go through to ping one of the maintainers of the, of the repo or somehow surface the fact that you've actually submitted this? Um, that's that's a little bit frustrating. Yeah, it is. Uh, the waiting is not a problem. I get that the people maintaining the Swift repos have better things to do that, than to take care of every single PR. But the frustrating thing is that you don't really know what's the next step and what you should do or if you should just wait. Yeah, I wonder if um, I wonder if that's not worth posting on the forums about. Yeah, you're probably right. When I did the pull request, I posted to the pitch thread that I created the pull request and nobody responded with something like uh, you should ping the maintainer on something like that. So I was like just waiting. Yeah. Hmm. I have one contribution to not, it's not actually to Swift itself. It's to, to Swift foundation. Um, and I submitted that pull request. I think it was merged. Well, it was sent back for some changes and then merged, uh, I think, within a day of submitting it. But maybe I just got lucky. Um, of course, it was not a proposal, which is, a, you know, that has to go through a whole process. But uh, interesting. So that that maybe, that maybe seems like a weak spot in the Swift, the, sort of the Swift open source process, which is you as a new contributor um, have have made a contribution. You've opened a pull request that actually has an implementation and, and a formal proposal and yet nothing's happening and you don't quite know why. So it seems like something that should probably be improved. Yeah. Maybe after someone listens to this episode, then I will know more and or someone will give me some advice or I hope so. Yeah, that's actually uh, that's if you're if you're listening and you uh, have been through this process before, have some idea of what Igor could do to sort of move things along um, one way or the other. I'm sure he would be happy to hear from you. We'll share this again, and it'll be in the show notes. But he's on Twitter. Uh, I well, why don't you give your Twitter handle so so I don't get it wrong? Yeah, I'm at Igor Kulman. So just my full name, and yeah, it will be the show notes for sure. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that was your first pitch and that turned into a, an actual proposal. You've got another pitch. Um, explain that one. Yeah. I made another pitch about a month or two ago and it's, I think it's something more mainstream that a lot of people can benefit from. 
I was working uh, on an app as a side job uh, that did a lot of statistic and math. And if you do math, you are summing uh, some objects or array of job objects uh, a lot. And uh, I was kind of expecting to have something like a sum method on a numeric array because many other languages I used to I used before like C sharp in .NET uh, have it. And I found out there is nothing like that in the Swift standard library. And looking at the code from the people that worked on the app before me, I saw a lot of uh, for loops uh, counting with a temporary variable, which is uh, not really nice to me. So I, I have some uh, functional programming experience. So I started writing uh, some with uh, reduce and later made it into an exten extension method in the actual code base. But I thought it, it would be a good idea to have something like a sum method over numeric arrays in the actual standard library. So everyone can use it without knowing that's even knowing that something like reduce exists because reduce is a functional concept that I think it's not that easy for especially for beginners. So where did it go? Where where where's this pitch at? Yes. So uh, so the pitch uh, first it went well. I think many people showed interest, especially counting the <laughs> likes likes on the forum. But uh, there was one problem. Uh, summing, uh, summing numeric arrays is not as easy as you may first think. I for sure did not. Uh, there are some problems you may encounter, like, for example, if you have an array of some small type like byte, and uh, maybe if you count uh, or sum the items one by one, you can overflow. But the result is not necessarily can not necessarily result in an overflow. So there is a question: Should it just overflow and throw an exception, or should it do some intelligent summing and counting to come to the expected result? And also, then if you have floating point numbers, then there can be some problems with uh, the precision. And there are some super specific algorithms for summing floating point numbers and stuff like that. And basically, the, in the community, it looked to me like everyone agreed that, yeah, it's a good idea. But uh, what's, what's the like, right way to implement it? Because if you implement it in the standard library, you have to do it right. And you have to do it right on the first try because you can't just change implementation in a lighter Swift release, breaking uh, every, everyone's code that uses this, this method. Well, how do you feel uh, about that? Because this is interesting. I think all the problems you bring up are right. Um, yeah, I, I think it uh, depends on, on the actual use in the app because um, I, I would say that in most of the apps, uh, uh, some naive implementation that just sums the numbers one by one would be absolutely okay. And if you need something like high precision floating point summing, then you would probably implement it uh, by yourself using some known algorithm in your app and not expect a sweep standard library to do something like that. And for uh, for a reference, I looked into C# and .NET, 
because the .NET Core implementation is open source. You can find it on GitHub. And I found how .NET does it. And it's quite interesting because for every type except, except for float, they do just a naive, naive summing. But for float, they uh, convert each uh, element of the array to double. Some, some sum it all as double and then convert it back to float. So that was like another idea. So maybe why not just get inspired by .NET and do it, do it like that. Did you explain to people that's, that's how .NET does it and give them a link and show them that, that that's your justification for doing it that way? Yeah, sure. In the pitch, uh, I mentioned it uh, twice and I also posted the link. I think that's a great way to to justify, um, you know, reason for doing certain things a certain way. If you can find evidence of of other uh, libraries and and languages that implement it that way, um, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah, that was uh, exactly my idea because before I made my even the first pitch, I read through some other pitches to see how it's done what people like mention and stuff like that. And many teachers that want to do something new to Swift or the standard library have links to this feature implemented in some other language or other runtime. So I, that's why I looked for the .NET implementation. So now what, uh, what, made it, what made you think to make a change to Swift itself and instead of uh, making a library just and posting that on GitHub and letting people use your library if they choose, um, was that ever a thought occurring to you? Yeah, um, basically my thought was uh, that uh, I know of other languages that have it in the standard library. Uh, they mentioned .NET and C Sharp and I think it's a it's a common operation on data. So it, it should be in the standard library because I can't imagine anyone like pu pulling, pulling uh, some math library to their uh, app just to do a sum. It's, I think, yeah, people do even worse thing like left pad in the Node.js world, but it, for me, it like felt right to put it in the standard library instead of creating some one-off library just for stuff like this. Hmm. I, I wonder if it make, would make things easier to get it integrated into the standard library uh, by making it a, a separate library first. Because I know that's happened a few times where uh, there's been a, a standard implementation um, that has just been incorporated. Um, like, like JSON, for instance, there wasn't JSON parsing with uh, in the first couple of versions of Swift. Um, and so there was a bunch of libraries that helped implement that, but uh, eventually they incorporated it uh, into, into Swift itself. Yeah, I, when I was looking at it, I found some math libraries. I think one was called Sigma, and it, it was too heavyweight for my use. So I just uh, created an extension. And the implementation, if, if it, was, it, it would be decided to be done in the naive way, would be really just a simple extension method or two extension method, depending if you want to do the floats a bit differently. So a small addition that just fell right for the standard library. 
Yeah. And the interesting thing is you, you did get a lot of people saying, yeah, I, I, li- I like this. I think it's a worthwhile addition. And it came down to the, the nitpicky implementation details. It's not that anybody actually thought it would be a bad idea to have some in the standard library in general. Yeah, maybe the maybe I should have tried just opening a formal proposal and having people express their thoughts about the implementation in the review. But I don't know, it felt like the pitch just died off without anyone replying about the specifics of the implementation. I don't follow the Swift Evolution forums uh, very closely because they feel overwhelming to me, but maybe I'll chime in (laughs) and try to revive your thread. Good luck. (laughs) Uh, So so this is two pitches, one formal proposal with pull request that, you know, hasn't moved forward yet, but um, might be easy to get a little discouraged. I wonder if you still plan to keep uh, pitching and proposing things. Yeah, that, that's that's a good point. I did not get discouraged after the first first pitch. And I think if I found something again that uh, I would think that uh, deserves uh, some addition to the standard library, I would make a pitch, pitch again. Because both of my pitches come from, say, real world use in an app I worked and it was something I needed and I thought it should or could benefit uh, more more people. Yeah, well, good. I think, you know, it's easy to get discouraged on something like this. Um, But personally, I hope you don't. Um, I think the more people contributing to Swift, the better. Uh, And I also think the more people trying to contribute to it, the better the process should get, you know? I agree. Yeah, and I I have to say, uh, doing the actual implementation for both both those speeches was also not that not as hard as i expected because both pitches are to the standard library which is written in swift not to the compile uh, not to the like actual language in c++ so uh, it uh, took a while to set up everything and have it built but then adding the actual implementation and creating the pull request was relatively easy much easier than i expected so people should also not be discouraged discouraged by this. It's not that hard for the standard library. That's actually a good point. If you want to contribute to Swift, contributing to the standard library, uh, Swift Foundation, or the package manager um, has a lower barrier to entry because the Swift compiler itself is written in C++, and it's not exactly like simple beginner C++ either. So... Um, it's a little, you know, assuming you're not an expert C++ developer, it's definitely easier to contribute to something other than the compiler itself. And I think the hardest part about that is just getting the Swift project <laughs> downloaded and building correctly and, you know, being patient because it takes quite a while to build depending on the how fast your computer is. Yeah, I, I actually found some great posts uh, about about having about setting in the app and building in. I think I can like uh, find them and we can put it in the show notes because they they helped me a lot. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, I'm curious, how fast does the Swift uh, project build on your computer? Oh, it's it took a really really long time. I, I I don't remember the exact numbers because I did it a few months ago. But it's like you spin off the build and you can just go for lunch or, or a time frame like this. 
so it's not minutes it's may i think it was for sure more than an hour and i only built the standard library in debug and the swift language in release i think building both in debug would be even uh, slower yeah it's amazing how <laughs> how big that project is uh so you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you um started as a windows phone developer and i actually want to ask you a little about that because i think that's unusual uh windows phone you know is more or less gone now but even at, even at, in its heyday was not as big as ios is now um what why did you start developing for windows phone yeah, so it was around 2011, 2012, and uh, at that time I did some uh, ASP.NET uh, web, uh, web stuff, and then Windows Phone came out, and it seemed like, uh, say, logical choice, because I wanted to do stuff with uh, mobile apps and mobile phones, and the platform and the language versus .NET Distinction were something that I already had some experience with, so I chose Windows Phone. And also as a user, the phones back then looked uh, really nice. They had a flat tile-based UI. And if you compared it to Android or iOS in 2011 or 2012, to me, it just uh, looked better because it was on iOS, it was the days of the skeuomorphism. So leather and wood textures everywhere. And I really, really disliked that uh, UI as a user. Well, we can fight now because I loved that UI. <laughs> uh, I think it uh, there was some basis for it for like people coming from uh, non-computer stuff. So the UI should or did remind them of stuff they knew from the real world. But uh, I'm really glad that Apple switched to uh, non-skeuomorphic uh, design in iOS 7, if I or 8. I don't remember now which version yeah, was. It was Yep. I actually think a bigger reason for that kind of UI than, you know, to provide affordances to people who are coming from not being experienced computer users was that the iPhone was the first uh, smartphone that had a huge, very bright, colorful, high resolution display like that. And so they were trying to show off how, you know, it was not just a tiny low res sort of poor color display like you were, you found on, every other phone out there at the time. Um, now, of course, every phone has that. Everyone's used to it, so there's not much to show off. But I, I, I'm guessing at that, but I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, and even with the skeuomorphism, it looked much better than uh, Android at the time because if I remember Android as uh, black apps with uh, gray phones crashing all the time. So <laughs> even with that, it was better. Yeah. So anyway, you're, you're working on windows phone. Um, did you, how long did you keep doing that? Uh, it was about five years. If I count it correctly, I only started with iOS uh, three years, about three years ago, because I'm, let's say I, I never was a Microsoft and, or Apple fanboy. I'm, I'm a pragmatic. And while windows phone paid the bills, even if the platform was dying off, then I kept doing it because I think I was good at it. And I, while I still had projects, I kept working on it. Because the one great thing with Windows Phone was there were so few developers that you can become like 
good uh, really quickly and you don't have so much competition. <laughs> so you decided to move over to iOS. Um, you mentioned that you turned your computer into a Hackintosh. Uh, why not buy a Mac? Yeah, uh, at the time uh, I was working for a company on the Windows Phone app and they had a, they basically offered me a great chance. They had uh, their uh, iOS and Android app built on Titanium, which was, which was a JavaScript uh, framework that uh, was not that great and it was causing problems and they uh, rebuilt the Android app uh, natively in Java and it was a great success and they were looking for someone to basically do the same for iOS, ditch the old Titanium app and build the app uh, basically from scratch in iOS and Swift. Uh, and I, I basically volunteered and that started my, my iOS journey. And at the time I was not entirely sure if I will keep doing iOS or if I will maybe move then to something else. So just uh, buying another SSD and installing my macOS on my desktop computer seemed like a logical choice. Not spending uh, extra amount of money on some Apple hardware when I had a perfectly good computer that I could, could turn into a Hackintosh. Now, I've never done that myself. Uh, what were some of the, uh, uh, the challenges that you experienced in, in trying to, to get that to work? Yes, yeah, so uh, the absolute basic thing you have to do is to have the right hardware because a Apple uses uh, the almost standard PC hardware in most of their computers. So you need to use the same PC hardware as Apple uses. So you have to have an Intel CPU, you can't have an AMD CPU and the same with some other types of components. And if you have the right hardware, then actually it's uh, not that uh, hard to get it get it working. The right hardware is the the most important thing. And yeah, it is mainly because of the drivers. Because if Apple uses Intel CPU in macOS, then they only like support Intel CPU in macOS and IMD CPU won't really work. It's not like Windows that's designed to work on a million computers in a billion configuration. Apple just has a few computers and all the drivers and the systems are tuned to that specific, uh, specific hardware. That makes sense. Have you run into a lot of trouble actually getting that to work or has it been pretty straightforward? Uh, not really. I now have a fairly old computer. It's about four or five years old. And uh, it looks now like the older your hardware is, the uh, better the Hackintosh stuff works. Because Apple is not moving very fast forward with their hardware. They never uh, support the latest uh, CPUs or the latest stuff. So you need a, a bit older uh, hardware components, components to make it work. And uh, around, around the Hackintosh, there is a great community community, and at the Tony Mac X86 uh, site where you can find uh, all sorts of guide, uh, guides on how to install it. There are, there are a buyer's guide. Every, every month, there is an updated uh, buyer's guide to tell you which component, components you should buy for which configuration 
that are like guaranteed to work uh, with the Hankintosh. And it's actually not that hard to get into it, but you need to spend some time learning stuff. And basically, I can say that maybe thanks to the Hackintosh, I know more about uh, hardware and or uh, macOS. That's uh, a common Apple Apple user. If you were gonna, let's say you decided that you wanted a brand new computer, um, you know, to do iOS development on, would you buy a Mac or would you build a, you know, brand new PC in Hackintosh? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, one thing that uh, is uh, limiting with Hackintosh is that the Hackintosh Inc. only works on desktop computers. It does not really work on laptops because laptops have very, very specific hardware tied to the manufacturer. So you can't really Hackintosh a laptop in a, re a reliable way. So if I needed a portable computer, I would have to buy a MacBook, although I'm not exactly a fan of the new keyboards and all the uh, breaking stuff in the current MacBooks. But if I needed a computer just uh, say for home or for the office without the uh, portability, I would probably build another Hackintosh just just to get uh, much more value from for my money, much more performance and better hardware. That's cool. Um, now I've been I've been looking through some of your uh, blog posts, um, and you you do a lot of referencing to uh, C sharp and F sharp. Um, uh, well, which makes sense from your background in Windows Phone. Um, what were some of the challenges switching languages like that, going from C sharp to, or F sharp to uh, to Swift? Yeah, I only did a bit of uh, F sharp. I did mostly C sharp out Windows Phone and .NET development. And the switch was actually not that hard because Swift is a let's say modern language, and I see a lot of uh, similarities to C sharp. Maybe even some inspiration uh, from C sharp. So that was actually not that hard, but there are still some things that are uh, really missing for me in Swift that I want to do or, or that I want to use daily and I just can't. Uh, the <laughs> like, biggest like thing, <laughs> yeah, the biggest thing I'm missing is uh, async await support. Mm, yep, and I in, agree. <laughs> in C Sharp, it's been there since. I don't know, 2015 or three, four years. And it's so great once you get to use it and you don't even think about it, just use it. And in Swift, you do all the callbacks and callback hell, or you have to use a library like PromiseKey that's okay, but it's a lot of boilerplate. And this async await, it's the thing I miss most about, about C Sharp. Yep, I, I can agree with you completely. Uh, having a little bit, uh, actually a lot of uh, C-sharp background myself, um, uh, I didn't do Windows Phone, but I was a desktop programmer in, uh, for C, in C-sharp for, for a couple of years as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm very familiar with the async and await um, uh, pattern that you're talking about. Um, one thing that I know I miss is um, the... Uh, the enumerable yield return uh, pattern that uh, C Sharp has, um, which you can get in Swift to a, to a point uh, when you use uh, libraries like uh, Rx Swift or Reactive Swift, uh, where you go into functional programming. Um, 
but uh, having it built in to uh, native Swift, um, I definitely miss that. It, it feels like they're going that direction with this new uh, combined framework, though. Um, have, you, have you looked into that at all? Yeah, I watched the WWDC uh, this year, like uh, for, like now every year, and I was really surprised about the Swift UI and the combined framework. I was expecting some new UI framework on top of UIKit and, and AppKit, but honestly, I was expecting something more like strange Apple-like that's not like anything else you have ever used. And Apple really surprised me with uh, with both frameworks. They look really nice and combine looks a lot of like Arik Swift. And I use Arik Swift uh, a lot. Basically coming from Windows Phone, I'm used to the MVVM pattern and I'm doing a kind of MVVM pattern also on iOS and I use Arik Swift mostly for uh, binding and some other stuff. So combine it's uh, really similar to Arik Swift from what I've seen so far. Yeah, I, I agree. I think Apple kind of surprised everyone and and <laughs> blew a number of us out of the water um, because I think I think even even Swift UI help uh, kind of helps you design towards that MVVM pattern as well. Um, I've seen a few examples already uh, posted on GitHub for that uh, demonstrate Swift UI in the MVVM pattern, and they've they've been very fascinating to me. Yeah, it's with the new examples, it's starting to look back like uh, some of my Windows code, Windows phone code with the MVVM, just ma mark the view model as at state and you are good to go. I think on async await particularly, um, people on the Swift team have been pretty clear that they would like to support that at some point. They're just waiting on, you know, various other f features in Swift to be available. Uh, I'm trying to think. There was one that came out in Swift 5.1 that I think helps with that, but can't remember what it was, though. Well, Igor, is there anything else we should talk about, about you, your work, uh, Swift, you know, pitching uh, and proposing things for Swift, or the world of Hackintosh before we wrap up and get to picks? Yeah, maybe I can mention some of my open source uh, project uh, that, that I think might be useful. When I started learning Swift and switched from C Sharp uh, to Swift, I was building the iOS app for the company, but I wanted to try to use Swift on something, say, like more real programming, not just painting views and reacting to touches. <laughs> so I read a great uh, post about building a Pascal interpreter and I implemented uh, it in Swift and put it on GitHub. So maybe for someone wanting to learn Swift and try it in something else than iOS, they can check it out. And uh, it, when I published it, it got some good, uh, good feedback. It even got retweeted by Chris Lantner. So maybe it's, it's worth checking out for people starting with Swift or wanting to see something else implemented in Swift. Oh, very cool. I like, I, I like that whole idea of writing, you know, interpreters or even compilers in Swift. I've got a little, um, I haven't open sourced it. I should, but I've got a little project where I wrote a fantasy CPU in Swift, uh, and then, and, and, and including an assembler, um, yeah, basically an assembler, um, 
well, an assembler and a debugger so that you can, uh, you know, write assembly language programs, but it's a instruction set that I came up with. that's you know, running in a swift emulator, essentially an emulator for a processor that doesn't really exist, but it's a, it's a pretty fun exercise. And swift actually turns out to be a really nice language to write that kind of thing in. Yeah. I like projects like that because they basically prove that uh, swift is a, a language that can be used for other stuff than just iOS, that it runs on Linux and you can do some programming of other stuff than just the UI in iOS. Yep. All right. Well, great. Uh, let's get to picks. Mike, do you have a pick for us? Um, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know why I thought about this, but uh, uh, there's a, um, a time tracking app that I've been using for a number of years um, that has been that has proven to be very useful and best of all free um, for for capturing um, the amount of time I spend on projects whether they be my personal projects or or uh, freelance contracting projects or or even just projects at work um, and uh, it's it's by a company called Toptal uh, T-O-P-T-A-L um, and so if you go to the website tracker.toptal.com for free, you can sign up and they will, they have an app that you can download that helps track, um, timers basically just, just timing everything and it, and it, uh, because you install this app, um, and if you give it the permission to, it will, uh, take screenshots and it will. Um, log activities. It will count mouse clicks and keyboard clicks. It won't record the keyboard clicks. It'll just count them, <laughs> and uh, basically, kind of proving um, how more or less busy you were during the time period that you were um, on the clock, more or less. Um, and uh, and like I said, I've been using it for a number of years, and it's been very useful. And I uh, and on, and then on top of that, it's free. Um, and so I, I just have to say I highly recommend it. it uh, you can also generate reports from it as well to see, you know, how much time you spend on certain projects over the course of a month or a year or over, you know, any time period, any range you want to put in. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my pick for the Great, thanks. Uh, Igor, do you have a pick for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, I have a, a tool for dealing with localizations because if you work on an iOS or macOS app and you do localization using the classic uh, localized.string files, there is no good way for you to know uh, which uh, strings are translated in which languages or if you are missing some translation for a specific language. So I built an app to deal with that. It's uh, free, it's open source, it's on GitHub. It's called the localization editor. And uh, you give it uh, the folder with all your localization. It reads the data and shows you the localization grouped by key side by side where each uh, row is uh, the key. And each column is a translation is a, in a specific language and you can quickly see what data you are missing what's translated how, and you can use it to edit your localization and have a uh, overview of what's, what's in your data in a much better and visual way than in just dealing it, with it like the text files in Xcode. Great. I'll actually have to check that out. I'm finally, finally moving over a Mac app that I have kind of neglected um, lately that it is a code base that's from 2006, so it's old. 
that's localized, I'm finally modernizing that and moving it to auto layout and the new, <laughs> well, it probably doesn't seem new to you, but the new localization stuff with the Excel IFF files and being able to use one um, zip or storyboard and not have to have separate ones for each localization, which is what it's doing now. Uh, but I've been looking for tools to sort of help manage that. There were some that I used 10 years ago um, to manage that that are no longer maintained and don't actually make sense with the, the newer stuff. So anyway, I'll check this out. That's great. Um, I've got one pick as well. I'm going to pick a, a company called BX Foundry. Um, a little hard to call it a company because it's just one guy. It's uh, Ben Jedwards, who is a fairly well-known tech historian and journalist um, who writes a lot about old computers and old games, old video games and video game consoles. He's actually got a business building custom uh, handmade joysticks for various different game platforms. Um, they're not cheap but they're handmade with really good, like high quality arcade parts. And uh, it's just, just really cool. It's a cool business. He's doing really good work. I've got one, um, one of his super, Ninten super Nintendo joysticks, uh, super solid and heavy and well-built. And like, it's like playing on a real arcade machine. So um, yeah, it's BX foundry and I'll, uh, I'll pick that. That's my pick. And I think with that, um, we're just about done. Igor, why don't you share how we can find you, how our listeners can find you? Yeah, so the best way to find me or contact me is, is on Twitter. I'm at, at Igor Kulman. And I have a programming blog in English at blog.kulman.sk, where I blog mostly about iOS, iOS programming. It's something just like my, basically my journal. If I solve some non-trivial problem i write a blog post about it so i don't re uh, forget how i how i did it and it's uh, sometimes useful also for other people great thanks everybody thanks igor for joining us and we'll see you next week bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more